You are listening to Uncomfortable, comfortable conversations around uncomfortable topics. Hi and welcome to another episode of Uncomfortable, the podcast that has comfortable conversations around uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Debbie Roach, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Joyce D. Williams about trauma and family estrangement. Now, before I tell you more about Joy, I just wanted to mention that Uncomfortable is an independent podcast and needs your support. If you want to support us, you can sign up to be a monthly patron and pledge as little as $2 per month. You can visit uncomfortable.blog forward slash donate for more information. And if you happen to be a small business that aligns with our values, then reach out to us about sponsorship opportunities. You can email me at hello at uncomfortable.blog. And if you can't financially support this little podcast, then hey, no worries. Just keep on listening and consider giving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Joyce D. Williams is a mental health professional serving the greater Cleveland, Ohio area. She is a nationally board-certified art therapist specializing in brain-based trauma-informed care. Joy is also a coach and studied in transformative presence and has lived experience changing the very fabric of her own life. And personally, Joy is a growth-oriented mama of one, a life partner and a dog mum to three unruly beasts and a voracious reader. I hope that you enjoy our conversation, but as always, here's a warning, there is some strong language, so when you're listening, pop on those headphones. This podcast was recorded and produced in Vancouver, BC, and the land on which I work is the unceded shared traditional territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Thank you so much for joining me on Uncomfortable, the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so very excited to be here with you today. I know. I'm happy to have you. Ed, trauma is one of those, it's like a topic that's just so huge that I'm not even sure I understand it. So I'm, you know, happy to be having this conversation and hopefully, you know, get some clarity along with listeners who I'm sure feel the same. So before we get into the topic, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a an art therapist. I'm a trauma therapist. And in the state of Ohio, I'm a counselor. And I'm also a transformational coach. So I am a woman of many hats. (laughs) I'm also a mom and a wife and a dog owner. And um, the main focus of what I do is trauma. I found that all of those modalities help with trauma and are valuable at their own different levels. So 
that's why I kind of do many different things. Yeah, definitely. It's like you're juggling a lot by the sounds of it. Um, yeah, I, I'm a bit of a multi-passionate entrepreneur so I wear many hats too but I don't have the motherhood part yet and I'm waiting for that to happen so you know I definitely bow my head to to working mums for sure yeah I I have I have some fortunate aspects to that my husband is mostly home with my daughter and um, we have my mother-in-law there too so we have supports and also kids can be you know challenging that it's amazing to be a mom and also they shine a little mirror at us right to tell us where we're not done with our work yet <laughs> oh yeah I can only imagine I'm yeah looking forward to hopefully that part of my life happening soon and yeah. also terrified also terrified um so yeah let's get into to trauma as I mentioned it's just one of those huge things that I can't even quite wrap my head around so tell us like what that word means to you like what does trauma look like so a lot of people are confused about trauma and they think that trauma are the really big things that they see other people experience and they don't really realize that they've also probably had some traumatic experiences or things that can be defined as trauma trauma by definition is really that is really anything that overwhelms our ability to cope that's it it doesn't really matter what it is. It just matters that it's a stressor that's bigger than, you know, what our system can handle. Mm -hmm. We all have sort of like an innate window of tolerance of distress. And we can expand that window through practices and coping skills. But anytime we're outside of that window, it can cause problems and be traumatic. Yeah, I mean, like, I usually think of trauma being something like really huge that's happened to someone for them to then have to kind of go through counseling but I guess it could be something just really small as well that's affected someone quite deeply right so there's I never really think of it that way yeah absolutely so in the field we talk about big t trauma and little t trauma oh I love it yeah, totally. So the big T trauma are the things like, you know, you see veterans with PSD and you're like, oh, that's trauma, right? Or we think of childhood sexual abuse as, you know, that's a big T trauma. And because nothing like that happened to you, you don't feel like you have trauma. But there's also small T trauma. And that could be as simple as moving a lot or having a family with a lot of like, uh, emotional dysfunction, for example. You work with, let me hopefully get this right, adverse childhood experience scales. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that's, that's something I've never heard of. And then you talk about how that connects, um, like briefly to to racial advantages and disadvantages of trauma. So yeah, that's a whole new thing for me to ever hear so yeah if you could tell us more about that that would be great that's a huge topic so we'll we'll take a take a, a section of it and talk about it it is um on the cdc website so for those listening they can do some more research and learn about it i sometimes do use the aces as it's short for 
in my work just to assess some of the history. But essentially, the Adverse Childhood Experience Scales is a survey about experiences that folks have had in their history. The uh, study was done in like 1995 originally, and it includes things like abuse, neglect, parental incarceration, a parental separation or divorce, having a parent with mental illness, things like that. And they found a pretty direct link between childhood trauma and chronic disease that people experience as adults, heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, autoimmune disorders, depression, violence, being a victim of violence, and even suicide. So it's a huge, huge link (laughs) between the traumatic experiences that we have in our early life and then the later health issues and experiences we have later in life. So is that something like anybody could access or is it just therapists, counselors that have access to those skills? Nope. If you Google it, you can look online and see that I'm sure lots of websites have it, the ACEs, and it's just a yes or no. I think there's about 10 questions that are yes or no, and it's a one for one. So I my personal score is a two, for example, so you can look that up. And if you don't mind elaborating, like, so you get the results of that. You kind of go through this online, you get the results, and then then what do you do with those results? Like, would it determine that perhaps you should speak to counseling or maybe it offers like some sort of resources that you can use to kind of help get get over if you can get over or even just cope with the trauma that you've had? Right. Um, we can talk about, you know, I know we'll talk about resources later. Uh, it just gives you that information. I think it's helpful if most people know that they've had trauma especially those big T traumas, but some of the questions you might review and go, oh, I, I do have a one or a two on the ACEs scale. They're very common. I think that that's a misconception. As 61% of adults who were surveyed across 25 states in the U.S. reported they had at least one type of an adverse childhood experience. And then one in six reported they had four or more. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would be common for people to have like one or two, but like having, yeah, more than that, four seems like a lot to me. I've lived a very privileged life though. So, you know, thankfully I, I haven't had to experience a lot of the trauma that other and especially you know other minorities have had to experience so yeah like how does that help you in the work that you do does that just kind of help you then determine how you can work with your your clients Mm -hmm. yeah I also use other PTSD scales too to assess like how it's affecting people in the present in their lives I think that the most important thing to know about the ACEs is how intergenerational trauma lives in our bodies and then our own trauma affects the expression of our DNA and, you know, whether or not we get a, a certain disease or not, you know, we can have a genetic disease in our encoded in our DNA, but it may not come out because we have had a privileged life and we haven't had to deal with traumatic experiences. And so we never know that we could get some form of cancer or heart disease. What, whereas others who have had a lot of trauma may have that already in their lives and see it in their family and have health 
effects because of that. Yeah, hmm, interesting. I'm I'm going to definitely take a look at that, and I'll post the link in the show notes to uh, to the CDC website. So one thing um, that I've always wondered is what exactly is the difference between going to therapy or a counselor and then going to coaching, especially for people who have experienced trauma, like is one way better than the other? The biggest question to ask with coaching is how is a coach trained in trauma? You don't currently have to have any training to call yourself a coach. And so that can be a really big problem. Um, It could also be really dangerous when we're talking about trauma because it is so vast and so personal that coaching could easily slip into the treatment of a mental health condition. And it, by definition, should not be doing that. So I think that there's a place for both therapy and coaching and supporting folks with trauma. Our stories need to be witnessed and shared and you need to have coping skills to deal with trauma and all of that comes from therapy. Uh, For myself in coaching, I found that it's the next level of healing, so to speak, that it looks at some of those like resilient adaptive strategies that we've used to survive and how they're not working anymore and they might be getting in our way. Like if we're perfectly functioning and happy and healthy for the most part. So it helps us to look at like where we can take action to change who you're being in the present moment. And um, it's personally impacted for me, like how happy and fulfilled I am in my own life. And it's really changed uh, somatic therapists often say the dis-ease in our body versus disease. And I think that it's a, it's changed how that's expressed for me in my life, uh, both the future and just like currently how I feel about life and relationships and everything. Were you a therapist slash counselor first before you went into coaching? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And like, why did you feel the need? Did you feel like there was just that other step? Like, as you say, it's kind of the next step that was needed. Was that the reason why you just thought, okay, I feel like there's something else I need to do to help my clients? Yeah, absolutely. I think that therapists can only take their clients as far as they've gone in the healing work that they do. And so when I found coaching and started to do it for myself and realized that it's possible to have another level of healing that I didn't know existed, even as a therapist, that it naturally became something that I wanted to add to help other people too. You've gone through your own trauma. So how does a trauma therapist actually navigate coping with their own trauma? Because I imagine you're dealing with a like a whole whack of other people's trauma, yet you still have yours. So yeah, what do you do? The same as everyone else. (laughs) Like, yes, of course, I know about more coping skills. And I have probably widened my window of tolerance over the years of listening to and sitting with other people's stories and dealing with my own. But for example, in the last five years, I personally had a lightning strike fire my home while I was pregnant I uh, that was followed pretty quickly by a relationship breach with my mom and I almost lost my job because of the layered stress factors at the time 
And so like, how, how did I deal with that is I sometimes dissociated and I dealt with the crisis in front of me and I had choice words for the news reporters who were, had cameras in my face, you know, that like we, I was outside of my window of intolerance and we do things when we're outside of our window of tolerance that we wouldn't normally do. That is so true. It's so true. So like, were the the cameras there because your house was struck by lightning, which is, you know, a very rare thing to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they were. It happened at three in the morning and they were there in about 15 minutes. Um, and so so it, because of the lightning strike, that's why they said they were there. It was so rare that, you know, it was on the news for like four hours in the morning that day. <laughs> oh my God. And like trying to cope with that while you're pregnant is not a great scenario. And then plus you have other clients. So when you, you know, you're going through all of this, but you have to sit down and be with your client who is also dealing with trauma. Like how do you kind of just switch your brain to for the focus to be on them? Thankfully, at that point in time, when I was actively in, you know, what could be described as a crisis situation, I was in management. And so I took a week off, I dealt with the crisis in front of me. And I didn't have to actively sit with folks. I also ended up taking FMLA after a few months and towards the end of my pregnancy and I needed that time to recover. We were displaced from our home for a while. So there were a lot of stressful factors that were involved and it would certainly be incredibly difficult to be present to clients at the same time as actively dealing with any immediate crisis situation. Yeah, I mean, I doubt it happens very often, but you could always add to your website that, you know, you take on clients whose homes have been struck by lightning because you've gone through that. <laughs> I It's funny you say that because I thought of doing uh, like a side business of somehow integrating home renovation as a therapeutic tool with my support for people who have gone through that because obviously I have so much more insight into like the recovery process. We were in a rental home for a while. We had to make all the decisions about repairing our or getting rid of and replacing our belongings, you know, just all the things. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Just so much trauma. So much trauma. So now you alluded a little bit to, you know, having, um, like family estrangement or just having a bit of a conflict with a family member. So can you share just as much as you want about that experience, but in particular, just how that affected your life and the work that you do? Absolutely. So I think uh, it's probably more of how has it not affected the work that I do? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, my mom was young. She was 17 when I was born and she had some of her own family estrangement at the time. And so I was what, what we call a parentified child. And I think that that has affected my life path in terms of I'm really good at listening to other people and helping problem solve and look at things a different way because my brain has been doing it since infancy. <laughs> 
as far as the family estrangement piece now, there was, uh, my mom was a therapist at the time, and there was a professional issue that happened. And because we were close, and because I knew about it, I had some ethical obligation to address it. That particular thing wasn't what caused our estrangement, but it was more the underlying issues in our relationship and the issues that happened at the time that I felt required me to take a step back from that relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about uncomfortable conversation, having to, you know, having that ethical, that obligation, right? Like that must have been, yeah, not a comfortable conversation at all. But it's amazing that you can kind of look back and see that that has affected what you do. And I I had never heard of that term parentified child. But like, as soon as you said it, I totally knew what you meant. And I can't really relate. But I've spoken with friends who have talked about being in similar situations. So if you want to, if you can talk a little bit more about what that term like means and why you think that happens in some relationships. Parentification, there's two different kinds, but it's essentially that a child has to act as a parent to their own parent or their own sibling. And one of the kinds is instrumental, which is really about the parent acting as the caregiver physically, for example, feeding changing, clothing, paying bills for their siblings or their family, all of those things. And then emotional parentification is when a child or adolescent has to take on the role of a confidant or a mediator for between their parents, that kind of thing. Yeah, like, why do you think that happens? I know sometimes like if my for example, if my parents come and visit me or I go and I travel with them, I don't know why, but it's like I turn into the parent. Like, sorry, mom and dad, I know you're kind of probably listening. And I don't know if it's just the fact that that I'm a bit of a control freak and I want to do all the the planning of what we're doing and make sure they see everything. But I feel like I turn into the the adult. And I don't know if that's the case for them with their parents. I know for my mom, it probably was, but it just seems like maybe that gets passed down in generations. Do you ever see that when you're working with clients? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's, I don't know that parentification specifically gets passed down, but what I think happens is that intergenerational trauma that lives in us gets passed down and then how that expresses is different for everyone. So for example, if your childhood was chaotic to you, right, and you needed to control, that's how you stayed safe. And that's great. But I'm sure that there are ways that that holds you back now, right, that you might want to go skydiving and you never will because you're terrified. (laughs) Pretty much. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So it happens because of the trauma. I think when we think about instrumental parentification, I think about parents with severe substance abuse issues who are literally not able physically or they're not present to be able to care for their children or mothers or any parents, right, who has a spouse who's gone or who has their their other caregiver is 
incarcerated and they're taking care of their children and they're working and they literally can't be present all the time to their children, that parentification is a natural cause of that, right? The emotional version, I think, is different, although it's still traumatic and still trauma-based because... It's like, for example, my mom was very young, as I mentioned, and she had family estrangement that was related to religious trauma at the time. And so she was mostly alone with me as a young woman, and she talked to me. And that's how she coped from being very isolated and being very alone. And when we look at that, we can't really blame her for that at the time, right? And there were effects from that. So good news is there's always hope with trauma. (laughs) We know now that you can recover and you can heal, that our brains are quote unquote plastic and that we can rewire our brains with everything that we do every day. And so that's really hopeful and exciting in general. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like kind of on, I don't know, can you just overcome trauma or is it something that you'll always live with, you just have to kind of find coping mechanisms. It's really both and. Hmm. So I'll take my example from the lightning fire that, you know, four years ago, that was a very dramatic incident. And I did therapy after that. I did EMDR therapy, which was very helpful. And currently, does it still bother me when I see photos of house fires or a year or two ago, there was that commercial with Aaron Rodgers and his house was burning for an insurance company, right? I did not like that commercial. <laughs> and I don't think I'll ever be expected to be comfortable with seeing images or dealing with that those kinds of things. Also, it's important to know, and a lot of people don't know this, that Sometimes when traumatic events happen in our lives, the anniversary of it can be triggering and can bring up feelings in our body. And so do the anniversary for me is coming up. And will I expect that, uh, what is it, July 18th will always be a day that maybe I want to take off or be kind to myself? Yes, absolutely. And at the same time, like I am healing and recovering and I'm not actively afraid of unplugging everything in my house or preventing something that is not preventable (laughs) yeah but I mean that's a good point like take the day off because you know even if someone like dies or yeah if someone has had a traumatic like a car accident too like that anniversary comes up and it almost brings back the trauma for that person so it's like yeah what can you do take the day off how can you care for yourself that day and know that that trauma is real Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when we talk about that, we also have to acknowledge the privilege of being able to take a day off or the privilege of knowing that it's a specific incident and a specific day that this happened. Whereas for Black, Indigenous, and people of color in our community, sometimes walking around every day is inherently traumatic. And that 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 ability to just take space is not always there. Yeah, and so what can people do, especially, you know, where perhaps, yeah, you you can't take a day off or trauma is something that you just live with every day because of the color of your skin. And I mean, this is a huge question. Like, how can we just slowly start to like unravel and find small things to cope on a day-to-day basis? 
Absolutely. I think that there are so many levels of the healing. And when we go back to the ACEs, that prevention is really important. But things in the community like access to work and food and quality childcare, mentors, mental health treatment is so important. And that that is a barrier for many people that they can't access those things. And and that is a huge piece of it. So yes, if you can access mental health services, again, we have some resources at the end of this yeah. to share, um, that that's super important. And also the one of the barriers is like culturally competent care too, because, you know, obviously I'm a white woman with my experience and I can cause harm without being appropriately trained to acknowledge and address the experiences of people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know how many therapists are out there, like in the world, especially in the States, because your system is a little bit different. But is like therapy something that is covered if people pay because I know you pay for your medical care and there's certain plans and then what's the option you know especially for for minorities and and for people of color who don't have that income like what what options are out there for them where they can get support absolutely those are the resources that I wanted to provide so um one source that I love is Open Path Psychotherapy Collective, and they're a nonprofit. You pay a one-time lifetime fee, and then you have access to the list of therapists, I'm on there, who are willing to take reduced fees like out of pocket in a, in a lower range compared to what maybe those normal fees are that can be over $100. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, I want to point out the Loveland Foundation, who is founded, uh, that was founded by Rachel Cargill. And it's a nonprofit that provides financial assistance to people of color, specifically black women and girls, in order to access therapy. So those of us with more privilege can donate, and then people will get vouchers in order to get free and reduced cost therapy services that way too no that's cool i'll make sure to post those links do you have any i mean your website is a huge resource (laughs) as well if people want to find out about you but yeah what other kind of resources do you point people towards I can also share with you a link to um, a coping skill sheet that I love that really talks about the different domains of coping and the pros and cons and gives examples because I think that we forget that there are a lot of things that we do every day that help us. Um, Taking three deep breaths calms your nervous system down, for example, and being present in the present moment is really important because a lot of times with trauma, there's triggers and we think that we're seeing or feeling something that's happening in the now that is that really happened in the past. And so grounding is really important for that. I also want to acknowledge that with grounding and trauma and, you know, racial trauma, that it's hard to feel like you can be safe in the present moment. And so sometimes when you're actively feeling trauma in your body and you're in an unsafe situation that grounding might not be the the only tool you know we've talked about I can't breathe and and just breathe and that sometimes that's invalidating too 
So all of these things are practices that we have to do multiple times in our lives regularly. I, in a training, I heard that you need to do something about six times a day in order for it to rewire your brain. So a lot of people will say like, they tell me to do breathing, but it doesn't work for me. And part of that is the active stress in your body. And part of that is also that it takes time to build a sense of safety and it takes a supportive therapist or a supportive community or a supportive family to be able to do that healing work as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, a lot of the time meditation is something that's suggested. It's hard. Try not to F-bomb there, but it's F-bomb hard sometimes to just even... Look, it's cool. It's my favorite word. I know, so. it's mine too. Mine too. I was just <laughs> attempting to like do one episode where I don't use fuck. <laughs> but, but there we go. But like even just finding that time. And I mean, I don't have kids. I have a fairly flexible job. And even I struggle to kind of like sit down. So, you know, someone who has lots of children, maybe works one or two jobs to make sure they're feeding their kids. How do you even find that space, right? Just for yourself. It's really difficult. Yeah, some, sometimes it is just the therapy once a week, you know, and that's really challenging. And we do have to find communities. I think now with coronavirus, we're going to have to do some of that community connection. You know, parents are going to have to connect with other parents and share caregiving and do some of these things that we've lost in our society these days just to survive and cope. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious to know how your practice is going in the midst of coronavirus. I know we meant I mentioned at the time of this recording where I am, we're starting to open things up. You're in the States, there's still a lot of cases there. Um so who knows how long this thing's gonna continue. But like how has been working in this time and how have you know your clients been? Yeah. So I transitioned from working in a hospital to full-time private practice pretty much at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. And I'm basically full in my practice now. Yeah. So that tells you a lot. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I can only imagine like how hard it is for people and especially people on the front lines who have to go out and, and continue working, right? Like it's, it's pretty frightening. mentioned too about just general resilience and hope and when we talk about a lot of these really stark difficult realities I want to come back to the whole point of all the work that I do which is to remind people that you know you can heal and you can rewire your brain and you can recover um As far as the parentified child thing goes, I think that I personally see now because of my own healing and that I'm not living in that place anymore, that I have many amazing skills and abilities and pieces of myself that came from being a parentified child. Um, uh, I'm in good company as well. Carl Jung was a parentified child. So (laughs) there's that. That, you know, the trauma, when we're talking about trauma, that yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's a vast, huge subject matter. And we can feel very disempowered for ourselves. And we can also feel disempowered for like how to create those societal changes that contribute. 
and cause, you know, harm. But that we, we have an obligation now to heal, you know, as a mother, I think it's important for me to heal my own intergenerational stuff for my daughter so that I don't cause unnecessary wounding on her and that mothers need support, parents need support, caregivers need support in order to do their own work, in order to make a decent wage, you know, all of that, like the individual work, the relational work, the social community work, and then the greater society work come together. And I think just by virtue of being me and being a parent, I have to believe that we can do that and we can create a different society and a different world that is safer and healthier for for everyone, everyone's children. Yeah, I think like that's beautiful to kind of bring it back to hope because as someone who wants to have children, sometimes, you know, when I'm watching news after news after, you know, not good news um, and seeing Donald Trump on the television again or tweeting something stupid again. And I actually, sometimes I it kind of can get me into a dark place where I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have kids. Do I you know really want to bring someone into this world right now because it just doesn't feel like a safe space at times but it's like you've got to come back to all the people who are doing really great work in trying to make it a safe space and and turn that you know negative mindset around and know that there's people like you out in the world who are helping thank you yeah absolutely I think that just to touch on the coping piece that we forget to turn the tv off or we forget to turn social media off and we share things very unconsciously on social media platforms and we don't realize unless we've gone through it that it can have hurtful effects especially for example black trauma porn like it's important to be aware of incidents that happen so that we can do something about it but it's really terrible for black people to watch black people being murdered all over their social media and have it be turned into memes and things like that and it's not okay so there is that aspect of like the micro of like pause for a second before you share on social media right just think about the impact of of what you're sharing and why you're sharing it and we're all guilty of that so yeah I mean you could just think it's the most like regular post you could write and that it wouldn't cause any trauma to anyone but you just you never know Absolutely. And and then as far as like the bringing people into the world piece, I think I had a friend one time remind me, you know, when I was having my daughter that there have always been struggles and difficult times and that we're not alone, even though we're in a really big moment of upheaval in a lot of ways that there were children who were born into the 1918 pandemic. There were children who were born, you know, during the Rodney King riots, there were children who were born all throughout history and all through these big dramatic times as well. And my daughter is a force to be reckoned with. And I think that, you know, the new generation of folks to come behind us will hopefully carry on the work that we can start now to create a different 
different experience for everyone. Um, so yeah, my last question would be more related to family estrangement. Like what advice do you give to clients who come to you who are estranged from a family member and are trying to cope with that? Because that's, that's a huge thing, right? How do people deal with that? Absolutely. It's so huge, too, because of all of the layered messages we get about family, like blood is thicker than water and, you you know, you don't tell family secrets and all of these old narratives that we have around family. But the truth is that, like, there there is not a one size fits all answer about family estrangement you do have to do what's best for you and your own family. If you have children, whenever you're able to do it, learning about boundaries and how to practice them and how to set them. There are lots of people out there who can, you know, help guide you in terms of how or a therapist, how to say and communicate your boundaries and what is okay and what isn't okay. And we have tons of internalized messages about what we're allowed to do or not allowed to do to unpack. So that's a big thing for therapy, right? And then uh, knowing that any structure you set up can be changed, nothing has to be permanent unless permanence is required due to a parent or a family member's like persistent abusive or harmful behavior. That was really helpful for me because I think there are times when you're going through therapy and you're addressing this childhood stuff that then your parent or your sibling or whoever is really triggering for you in that moment because you're dredging it all up and that it's a perfectly okay to go non-communication with people sometimes when you're doing that deeper healing work and that it's also possible to have a different kind of relationship than you had with them as a child, than you have with them while you're actively doing therapy or what you might have with them in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought about that, right? How your relationship will be kind of moving forward. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joy. This is, this has been a joy talking to you. I'm sure you hear that terrible joke. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a beautiful name. Like what a wonderful name to have. And it definitely suits you. Um, So yeah, it's been fantastic chatting with you and learning more about trauma. I feel like I've got work to do. Uh, We all have work to do. And thank you so much for all the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I think a really good example, you mentioned my name and a lot of people say like, oh, so my name is actually Joyous Dawn. And a lot of people are like, oh, amazing. Your parents were hippies or whatever else. And it's a really good example of the narrative of my life because I was actually named for like the religious afterlife of the religion Ah. that I grew up in. And so I had a lot of to unpack about my name and what that meant and what as a parentified child I was here to do for my parents and for the world and what that looked like. And I think that I'm at a place now where I do see that greater vision of of where I am now, where 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 and when I was born and how that could contribute to hopefully what is a joyous dawn that we'll all create. But it didn't come without you know, struggle and unpacking and lots of therapy and personal healing work. (laughs) Like you had to do the work. You really had to. Amazing. Well, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And thank you again. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode, my friends. Now make sure to connect with Joy over at her website, everywoman.com. And that's everywoman, W-O-M-X-N.com. You can also follow her over on Instagram at Recreating Dawn and Every Woman Coach. And of course, the links will be in the show notes. You can find this little podcast by visiting uncomfortable.blog or head over to our social media channels, uncomfortable.blog on Facebook and Instagram and uncomfy underscore podcast on Twitter. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, you can support my little indie podcast by becoming a patron and giving as little as $2 per month. And that will actually just help me cover my podcasting expenses, such as hosting, editing, and little equipment upgrades when needed. This podcast was recorded and produced in Vancouver, BC, and the land on which I work is the unceded, shared traditional territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Thank you again for listening. Now go out there and get uncomfortable.